We're going to read God's Word together. Our Bible reading this morning is going to come from the book of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. So if you have your Bible at home, if you'd like to grab it, turn to it, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. This passage is entitled, Suffering for Being a Christian. I'm going to read from the NIV. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of evildoer, criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quoting Proverbs, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word to us through his servant, Peter. May God speak to us this morning through that passage. Let me just pray and then we'll work our way through this passage. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, again for your word. And we pray that you might be pleased to speak to us through it, that you might shape our lives by these truths. Help us to uh, be realistic in our responses to the truths that this passage contains for us. Lord, achieve your will, achieve your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this message, Being Realistic. Living in the real world, not in some idealised or unrealistic world. Last week, in the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of chapter 4, the Apostle Peter has given us that as the time is nearing to an end, uh, what should we do? And he told us that we should battle with sin, that we should have compassion on lost people, uh, that we need to be committed to one another congregationally, to pray, to love one another and cover sins, multitude of sins but also to practice hospitality together and to use our gifts, especially inside the work of the church, but also outside. That's what we're to do. And then in the midst of that, that leads forth to Peter bursting into this panorama of praise, of all praise be to God through the Lord Jesus in verse 11, so that God might be praised in all things through Jesus. And then in the midst of praise, there is this dissonant note of a reminder of something. Many scholars, we don't know this definitely, but many scholars think that at this point in his writing, Peter suddenly gets a messenger and a messenger from Rome because something had happened in Rome and the word had come and he was writing to prepare the people. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, We live in this world and in terms of being realistic, many people 
have false or unrealistic expectations of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. Um, Some people start following Jesus and they assume, they expect that because now that they are following him, that now they'll be happy, they'll be healthy, they'll be holy, that they'll be protected by God from all harm and that they'll always be at peace. It's not true, it's unrealistic. If God loves me, then all will be well. We know that's not the case. I want to name for you in a, just half a dozen or so false expectations that uh, we have heard over the years. Number one, Christians always have happy marriages. Well, it's just not true. We have different temperaments and we live in this fallen world. So it's not true. Christians don't always have happy marriages. Christians can have solid, good marriages if they're obedient, but we are married to a sinner and with different temperaments, we get shaped and moulded by it. Number two, Christians always love to pray and to serve Christ. It'd be nice if it was true, but we're still in the flesh. We still need to be renewed on a regular basis. We still need to be motivated and encouraged to serve him. It's not true that all Christians are always loving him and they love to pray and they love to serve. Number three, Christians don't struggle with sin, doubt or fear. Well, that's clearly not true. We continue to struggle with the power of sin that is in us and is still in our world. The penalty has been dealt with, but the residual power of sin is still present in us and we still need to confess and repent and struggle with sin. Number four, Christians feel pain less because Christ is with them. Well, that's not true either. Christians grieve just like other people grieve at the loss of a loved one. We have hope, but we still feel the grief. It doesn't take the pain away, but it helps us to cope with it. We still live in the body and we still have chemical imbalances. So the next one, Christians don't need medication because they have Jesus is not true. If we don't eat right, if we don't exercise properly, if our thyroid plays up, then we'll bear the consequences of it. Following Jesus doesn't suddenly make everything rosy and perfect. Number six, Christians are safer, healthier and wealthier. Christians have car accidents, Christian homes get broken into. This stuff happens to everybody. We live in a fallen, broken world and we are not delivered from it. And finally, number seven, Christians don't get tired or discouraged. (laughs) Well, I know that's rubbish because I do get tired and there are times when I do do get discouraged. If we live with these false, these unrealistic expectations of what Jesus would do in our life, then we're going to live our life uh, in a fog of confusion, of frustration, of disappointment. We need to shape our life by God's word by the Bible. We need to be Bible readers and Bible practitioners. We need to take God at his word and live our lives accordingly. That will give us balance and hope and direction in this fallen world. In fact, that's why God gives us the Bible, to teach us about himself, but also to instruct us on how to live in this broken, fallen world. He doesn't take us out of the world, but he gives us direction and instructions on how to live in it. And of course, the scriptures also give us hope for the next life, that this life is not all there is. We people, as we follow Jesus, we are a 
a mixture of things if we're going to be honest this morning. While we love Jesus, that's certainly true, we still struggle with the flesh. While we have faith, we may also still occasionally have doubts and certainly have questions that we can't answer. While we have discovered the truth as it is in Jesus, we still have parts of it that we don't fully understand and questions that have, we haven't received answers for yet. While we've been forgiven, we still need to be fully delivered from the power of sin in our life. We certainly experience God's comfort, but we still feel the pain of our own failures. So in the midst of that sort of background and understanding, Peter writes to these new believers in Asia Minor. In verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. Sometimes, and Peter's writing to these new Christians to encourage them not to be shocked by it, not to be surprised, but rather to expect it. But sometimes we are, aren't we? We are surprised. We are shocked that we're going through a crisis, through a difficulty. We have an expectation that that shouldn't be happening to us. And the number one question we ask of God is why? Why me? It's a good question and it's okay to ask it. But Peter says, don't be surprised by it, but rather expect it. And let me just emphasise something that he, that I've coloured for you in terms of something has happened in Rome. And I think that's what's behind this phrase, the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. We know from history that in the middle of 64 AD, and that's around about the time when Peter is writing, maybe just slightly after this event, um, certainly some would say that, <clears throat> in the middle of, July, in the middle of uh, 64 AD, in the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, in, in, starting on the 16th of July, so almost this time, and for nine weeks, the city of Rome was in flames. Rome burned. Nero, who was the emperor, he wanted to rebuild the old city. He wanted to expand it and he wanted to beautify it. And he's the one who did it. But of course, he never admitted that. He watched the flames of Rome burn. The old saying is that he played the fiddle, and that's not true while flame burned, but it is true that he watched it burn and he watched it with glee. In fact, when people tried to put some of the fires out, Roman soldiers stopped them and they, in fact, started new fires because they were acting under his orders. The people who lost their homes, who lost their possessions, who lost everything, lost loved ones, they were furious, obviously. And they suspected that Nero was the one who was behind it all. And there was almost this public revolt against him. So he looked for a scapegoat. And guess who he blamed? The Christians. They weren't overly popular anyway, particularly in the city of Rome, and so he blamed them. Um, they did it. And to establish his belief that they did it, or to give that impression, he captured Christians and he would um, tie them to large poles with ropes and then elevate them in his gardens and on the streets around his palace, cover them in pitch and then set them on fire. He was using them as human torches to light the night sky in the city of Rome, persecuting Christians, the fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised, Peter says, at the fiery ordeal that's coming upon you, that has come upon you. What would have happened is, if that happened by Caesar in the city of Rome, 
then loyal provinces in the empire would copy suit. They would likewise start finding Christians and persecuting them. And this certainly was the beginning of about 200 years of oscillating persecution of Christians. It wasn't non-stop, it was in different spots, in different places and sometimes incredibly intense. And Peter's writing with that understanding. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. To test you in terms of, are you a true follower of Jesus? Will be loyal and faithful to him? So God allows trials, difficulties, crises into our life whether it's by being persecuted for our faith or whether it's other difficulties that come into our life, God uses these things to test us, to prove us, to strengthen us. God does it, Peter says in chapter 1, to purify us. As I said before, we struggle with sin. So sometimes God turns the heat up in our life, the difficulties in our life, for us to make sensible choices, not to indulge in that which is unimportant and to realign the priority systems. God allows these things in our life to humble us, gave the Apostle Paul a thorn in the flesh to humble him, which in turn leads to and to depend on him. Difficulties, pain, suffering in our life calls us back to God. In fact, it's when we suffer that we cry out to God, isn't it? We turn to him. That's why God allows it. God's power is drawn or attracted to, if you like, human weakness. His power kicks in when ours runs out. God made us to be, and therefore he loves us to be, dependent on him. Not weaklings, but dependent and strong in the strength that he gives. When I was much younger and I did some uh, bronze medallion stuff and some life-saving stuff uh, in our small country town at a pool, it wasn't at the oceans. Um, one of the things we're instructed to do is that if you had to go out into the water, into the ocean or the river to save somebody, if they're struggling to swim, as you swim out to them, don't go, stay about a metre or a couple of metres away from them and let them to continue to struggle and then when they finally stop struggling, then save them. If you try to save them too early, they will struggle against you and they'll actually drag you down with them. So it's when you stop struggling that you get saved. So too for us spiritually. It's when we stop struggling with our questions and issues and our rebellions against God and everything else and when we finally submit to him that he steps in. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Um, and God allows these things to happen. In fact, there are things that happen in this world I'm pretty sure that God's not happy about and that God doesn't want to happen. It's not part of his plan. But God gave people, us, free will. And if we have free will, then we can choose to do good things and we can choose to do bad things. We can be selfish. And that's exactly our history. And because God gives us free will, other people can hurt us because they have free will. And that's what's going on here. Sometimes we suffer, things go wrong in our life because we sin, because we have done the wrong thing and God's trying to get our attention. Not all sin leads to suffering, not saying that. Not all suffering is because of sin either. But sometimes sin, our sin, does lead to suffering, God's discipline in our life. And like I said, God does that to test us. But there's another reason, and this is the reason Peter gives in this passage why we suffer, and that's because we are united with Jesus 
That's the reason primarily given in this passage about why people suffer. We live in a fallen world, we suffer. People have free will and they can do bad things, we suffer. We sin, we can suffer. But we also suffer because we are Christians, because we follow the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, he says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Let me just flick ahead and read you two other verses. Verse 14, he says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. And then down to verse 16, However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Because we are associated with Jesus, because we are united with him, suffering becomes the byproduct of us being in him. If I were to say to you, uh, what do you do? What are you in? And you'd say, I'm in business. Well, if the business, if the economy is taking a tank, then you being in business and the business is in trouble, then you'll be in trouble because you're in business. If you're in stocks and they drop, then you'll drop. Whatever you're in, you are associated with and united with. And because we are in Christ, the way Jesus is treated is that'll affect us. We get treated the way that he does. And we live in a world that rebels against him. Certainly, speaking honestly, it's a miserable thing to endure mockery and scorn, character assassination. Nobody wants to go through that. But as we follow Jesus, sometimes that will be the consequence of it. Like him, you don't go seeking it. You don't go seeking to irritate people and to call forth retaliation. But nor do we retreat from it. We need to accept it when it comes. And when it comes, it reveals to us whom we are aligned with. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. When people persecute, reject, whatever, Christians, simply because they are followers of Jesus, they are really rejecting and attacking Jesus. That's how Jesus sees it, that we are in him and associated with him and the way people are treating us is how they would treat him. And the reverse is that is the case. The way they treated him, I'll read you a list in a moment, the way they treated him is how we should expect they will treat us. We ought not to be surprised. It's not strange, this thing called persecution or suffering. Now, in our world, in the Western world, in Australia particularly, we are incredibly blessed and privileged. I don't think many of us, if any of us, have ever had to endure physical persecution for our faith. Some would have. But in other countries, other nations of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ face physical torture, persecution, being thrown in jail, being excluded from employment, all rights and privileges taken away from them, some of them even tortured to death. That doesn't happen for us yet. But Jesus said, a time will come when all nations will hate you because you belong to me. You'll be persecuted. That's not our life yet, but it was the life and coming for the first century Christians to whom Peter is writing... How did people treat the Lord Jesus? Well, here is a list for you. See if you can identify with this and see if your life is any harder than his 
excluding, of course, the crucifixion, his death and resurrection. Here are ten quick things. Let me hasten very quickly. Uh, he worked hard um, as a tradie, as a builder, as a, uh, works in, uh, as a carpenter, but he only ever just made enough just to barely get by, to survive. He was never wealthy. He was never married and he had no children. He never became a homeowner. In fact, he had no place to lay his head. He became the special focus of the devil's attention. He faced, therefore, stronger force in temptation than what we ever experienced since then or even before him. Number five, he was the, probably the most unappreciated person. He was rejected in his own town and he was without honour in his own country. His colleagues he, were a reasonably constant um, frustration, both for him and for them, was that they just didn't understand him and they were reluctant to follow him. It's something they had to grow into, but that was a painful thing for him. He certainly knew the deep pain of betrayal from one that he had shared so much with and also the denial of his closest disciple. In the hour of his greatest need in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looked for his friend's support and he found none. He was alone, except for his Heavenly Father. He faced false charges and accusations and there was no one there to help him find justice. While he always consistently reached out in love to all people around him, he received hatred in return. How does our life compare to his? Well, for some of those points, some of us can have similar parallels. But that's, like I said, not even counting his crucifixion. Not just the physical dimension, but the spiritual dimension to that, and his death and burial. We identify with him, and if that's how he was treated in this world... That's how we can expect to be treated. And if we're not, then that's God's goodness and grace to us and we ought to be certainly very thankful and appreciative and very obedient. A time is coming when it will be increasingly difficult for us to live the lives that we have become accustomed to. In verse 14, the, Lord, uh, the passage talks about because you bear the name of Christ, we are called Christians. It's only words that are used three times in the New Testament. This was one, the other two in the book of Acts. It was initially given, and it's given usually by non-Christians, is what they call us, Christianos, followers of Christ. And it was given as a slur. It was given as a derogatory term because most peoples were followers of Caesar. They submitted to Caesar and they acknowledged that publicly. But for the Christians, where they took a little pinch of salt and offered it on the altar once a year, and they were supposed to declare their allegiance to Caesar, Christians would declare their allegiance to Christ, which led in turn to them being exposed and being persecuted. But we bear the name. So when you are persecuted, when somebody says to you, oh, you're a Christian, then respond proudly, not with shame. Don't be ashamed. But rather say, yes, I am. And then praise God that I am. Thank God that I am. They're following him in this fallen world. Now, let's move on. The Apostle Peter then goes on to say, well, if you follow Jesus and you're in him, you can expect persecution. You can expect hard times, difficulties, rejection and derogatory comments and so on. 
But we live in this fallen world and we still have a sinful nature. So Peter says, if you are suffering, don't let it be for the reasons of being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And notice what's in the list. Or even a meddler. What the Apostle Peter is saying to us is that Christians are not to retaliate. Regardless of what the world does to us, regardless of how your colleagues, friends, neighbours, family respond to you because you follow Jesus, we are not to retaliate. Turn the other cheek. We are to be merciful and to pray and to bless. It's a tough gig, but that's the calling. That's what the Master wants us to do. Being persecuted, to use the general all-encompassing word, is no excuse for lawlessness. We can't take the law into our own hands. If people are physically violent to us, that does not justify us committing murder, of us retaliating with physical violence. If our properties are confiscated, that is no excuse for us to thieve. If people do evil things to us, that's no excuse for us to retaliate. And in fact, please note this, not even to meddle, to be a meddler. I'm surprised that Peter puts that into the list, but he puts it into the list because I think he means that when we meddle in other people's affairs, when it's none of our business, we can do as much damage as murder and thieving and doing evil. It's a destructive thing to do. We are not to meddle, to stick our nose into other people's businesses and to seek to to influence them or to undermine them when it's got nothing to do with us. The Lord certainly disapproves when we violate reasonable social standards and he doesn't bless tactlessness and obnoxiousness. So if we suffer, don't let it because we've done something wrong. So I drove the church this morning, I saw across the road, there was a a guy pulled up and the police car was behind him and the red and blue lights were flashing and he's got caught and he's being punished because he did something wrong. I know that experience, I've had that same experience. Probably you have too. You can't, oh, it's because I'm a Christian that I'm being persecuted. No, you're paying the penalty for doing something wrong. And Peter says, don't let that be the reason for why you're suffering. He goes on to say, because it's time, judgment day is coming. And in fact, judgment day is here and it begins with the house of God. Peter's basically saying, if we're his children... He's God's family. And if God not only allows us to suffer, but if God disciplines us for the sin and the waywardness in our life, if that's how God treats his children, what's going to happen to those who are not his children? It's going to be worse. That's his point. If judgment begins with the household of God, um, what will be the outcome of those who disobey the gospel of Jesus? And then he quotes the book of Proverbs and he says... If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, note, it's hard for the righteous to be saved. Following Jesus is not easy. If you think it is easy, if you haven't signed up and declared battle against sin, if you're not following Jesus and it's not hard, then there's a good chance you're not actually following Jesus, that you're not saved, that you don't have the real deal Um, but if you declare war on sin then you'll experience the struggle it's a dead fish that goes with the flow 
It's a live fish that swims against the current of the world. If you find it easy, if you're travelling with the flow of the world, it could be an indication, a warning, that in fact you're amongst those who don't know him or are following him. If it's hard for the, God, the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Much worse. Why did God make hell? God didn't make hell for us. He made hell for Satan and his demons. Oh, why do people go to hell? Because they choose, they don't want to go to be with God. There's only two options, with God or without God. And God gave us free will to choose. And when we choose, he will honour that. God will not force us against our will to live with him. It's a response that we have to give freely and willingly, accepting Jesus. But if we resist him, rebel against him, then he will simply say to us, have it your way, away from me. And that means you will live in what the Bible calls hell, in a place that's excluded from him, a place where God's presence, in God's love, God's mercy, God's grace is withdrawn. It's not there. Hell is a place of complete self-focus and of rebellion and anger against God. They hate God and they hate God putting them in this place and they have no desire to change. What will become of the ungodly? And then Peter concludes, so then, those who suffer according to God's will, please note that, sometimes it is God's will that we suffer. As I've already indicated, whether it's because we've sinned or whether it's because God's allowing evil people to make bad choices and that impacts us. But through it all, God has this incredible ability to take bad things and to use them for good results. Romans 8.28 He is the God who is at work in our world and all things work together for our good and for his glory. Sometimes we can't see it, but that's when you have to hang on by faith and trust him. So, if we are suffering according to the will of God, what should we do? Two things. Number one, commit yourself afresh to your faithful creator. And number two, continue to do good. Don't change. Keep following the Lord Jesus. Commit yourself to a faithful creator. When you don't understand what's going on, when you don't know what's happening in your life, when you just don't get it, trust him. Commit yourself to him, like Abraham did. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I know him and I trust him that he will always do the right thing, even if that means incredible difficulties for me. We are to continue the course, continue to do the right thing. Let me tell you this quick story. In the middle of the United States, Midwest USA, in the middle of the day once, this freak storm came across the city. The sky went this like blood red colour and then it went just black, just went dark. The sun was blotted out. There was a case happening in a courtroom when that happened and there was a blackout in the, uh, in the courthouse. And people began to panic and to shout out things like, it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world. And they were frightened. The judge who was sitting behind his bench simply said, send for some candles. If, it is the, Lord, if the Lord is coming, we'll be busy doing our work. Good response, isn't it? If you knew the end was coming in three days' time, what would you do? Billy Graham was asked that question 
And his answer was, I'd spend the first two days preparing, writing a sermon, and he said on the third day I'd preach it. He would continue to do good. He would continue to do what God's will was, just like that judge. The end of all things is near. What's next? God's will. Whatever he wants me to do this day, live this day for him. Interestingly, in John chapter 9, the Lord Jesus uh, is brought across the path of a man who is blind and the disciples ask him the question, why is he blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? In their worldview, blindness was caused by some sin. Jesus' answer, he doesn't answer that question, Jesus' answer is, he's blind because God is going to be glorified. In the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a difficulty or a disability, God is to be glorified. In the midst of what goes wrong in our life, in our crises, in our issues, God is to be glorified. How? Commit yourself to a faithful creator and continue to do good. We do not choose to suffer, but we do choose to do God's will, even if it means we suffer as a result of it. And that's an important difference. He is the God who has blessed us, so we should give him thanks. He is the God who watches over us, so we should continue to live for him. He is the God who has resourced us, so we need to be faithful stewards. He wants to work in us and through us, so let us commit ourselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good. That's Peter's word and instruction to us this day. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth and it speaks to us. We acknowledge that we find uh, the Christian life sometimes a struggle, hard. Not always, but there are difficulties in it. Help us, Lord, to live faithfully for you and, if necessary, to swim against the stream of the world. Could you deliver us, clear our minds of all unrealistic expectations and unbiblical worldviews, and renew us day by day as we follow Jesus. Lord, we want to commit ourselves to you, and we ask that you might strengthen us to continue to do good. Lord, hear our prayer and strengthen us in this battle till Jesus comes. We pray in his name. Amen.